One author said that what the church needs most is not more or better machinery, not new organizations, not more or novel methods. What she needs most is men, men whom the Holy Spirit can use, men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. The Holy Spirit doesn't flow through methods, but through men. It doesn't come through machinery, but on men. He doesn't appoint, he doesn't anoint plans, but men, men of prayer. So let's turn to him in prayer before we hear from God's word together. Father God in heaven, we are humbled by your mercy and your grace towards us, wicked men and women who you have redeemed, who you have caused to be born again to a living hope, made alive together with Jesus Christ, who you have fitted us together in this body, united in and through and under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We're so thankful for all that you are doing, all that you have done, and all that you will do in and through the ministry of your word by the power of your Spirit, For the glory of Christ. Lord, we are so thankful that you are a faithful God. Great is your faithfulness, even as we have sung. We trust you even this day for your mercies. We trust you even this day for your strength. Strengthen us, strengthen us in this next hour that we would listen attentively, that we would take the position of humility submissive to your authority as delineated, as revealed, as described in your holy word. Oh God, won't you, by the power of your Spirit, take your powerful word and transform our hearts, transform our minds, that we would think more like Jesus, that we would live like Jesus lived that we would walk like Jesus walked. In fact, that it would no longer be us who walk, but it would be Jesus who walks in us and through us for your glory. Every Sunday we know that there are many who gather who are still dead in their trespasses and sins. Please, won't you be merciful that even today your spirit of mercy and grace would be poured out upon, upon all who or within the range of the sound of my voice, that they would be saved by your mercy and grace, that today they might be born again, made alive together with Christ, set free from their enslavements, so that they might walk in newness of life together with Christ and for His glory. It's in your holy name we pray these things, O great God, with great humility and independence of you. Amen. Livingstone Bible Church, do you understand what Jesus is doing in and through establishing this church within this community, within this four-ways Bryanston community? Do you appreciate that the Holy Spirit is using you as living stones to build Christ's church and to proclaim His excellencies within this community? Please may I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter, 
the first letter of Peter, 1 Peter. As we plan to develop this property so that we might make it more suitable for the ministry that the Lord has caused us to fulfill, that He's called us to do, certainly there are many things that we need to be considering. And we must be sure not to overlook small but essential elements. First and foremost, we need approved architectural plans, construction drawings, so that the builders and the subcontractors can use these drawings so as to determine the strength and the type of foundation needed to support the walls and the roof and everyone inside. The walls will provide some degree of protection against the elements such as weather, thieves, rust, moths who steal and destroy. However, it's really important to remember that despite our best efforts, because this isn't the millennial kingdom, because we're still living in a Genesis 3 fallen world, even the most beautiful of buildings will soon crack and rust and fade and wither away. And that is why, as we've been learning, we must not invest our wealth in possessions Possession, wealth and possessions and earthly things to the expense of investing our wealth and possessions with God in heaven. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, the apostle Peter teaches us about a building which will not crack, a building which will not rust or fade or wither away. He's teaching us about a spiritual house. God's house, Livingstone Bible Church, which is not made up of brick and mortar, but of a body of believers, of living stones, who are united with and under Jesus Christ. But before we delve into 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, it's important for us to understand the context, the background, the setting, and the purpose for which Peter writes. Peter was formerly known as Simon, who was a fisherman whom Jesus chose to be his disciple and then later commissioned as his apostle. Although in his early years, Peter was extremely overconfident. He denied Christ three times at his crucifixion. And he was even rebuked by the apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 2 because of his hypocrisy. But the grace and the commission of the Lord Jesus Christ, by God's grace, Peter became known as a powerful preacher, as a model shepherd, and as a devoted martyr for Jesus Christ, his master. Peter, an apostle, penned this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he explains in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 22, He says that no prophecy of Scripture comes by one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by the will of man, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. And so he writes this first letter under the Spirit's inspiration, which was written around AD 64, AD 65, 64, 65, around the time when Christians were blamed by Nero for the burning of Rome. And so Peter writes this letter to encourage and instruct these Christians in the Roman Empire 
to live obediently in every aspect of their lives, even though it will most likely cost them their life. We see in chapter 1, verse 1, that Peter addresses this letter to Christians living within the Roman Empire. He lists several churches there, various groups that fall under the, the Roman Empire. And then from verse 3 through to 12, it's actually one long sentence in the Greek where Peter praises the Father for His great mercy. His great mercy in causing us to be born again, to be made alive together with Christ, to be saved to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He rose from the dead and is alive. And this is the primary reason why we can suffer and why we can endure trials with joy. Because we know and we love and we trust Jesus Christ whilst patiently awaiting the culmination of our salvation. And so in chapter 2, verse 21, he exhorts them to imitate Christ in the midst of suffering and persecution. In light of the great undeserved salvation which he opens this letter with, Peter then issues five exhortations, five commands from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, which stretches all the way through to chapter 2, verse 3. Five commands. Verse 13, be hopeful. Verses 14 through 16, be holy. Verses 17 through 21, fear God. Verses 22 through 25, love one another. And then fifth and finally in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, desire the word. Or you could say be hungry, be hungry for the word. And then after issuing these five exhortations, he then turns using a spiritual building analogy to describe three essential elements for building God's house. Three essential elements for building God's house, the house of God, so that you will serve the church and proclaim Christ's excellencies. Therefore, with that historical and liter literary context in mind, let's read the passage that lies before us, the passage that we'll be studying this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious stone, a precious cornerstone. And he who believes upon him will not be put to shame. This precious value, then, is for you who, be who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to the stumbling they were also appointed. But you are a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, 
but now you are the people of God. You have not received mercy. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Thus reads God's holy word. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, the Apostle Peter describes three essential elements for building the house of God so that you might serve the church and proclaim Christ's excellencies. And like any structural engineer will tell you, the most important element of any building is its foundation. The foundation, which we see in verse 4. This is the first essential element, the foundation. And the foundation is the living stone. Peter says in verse 4, And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Notice in verse 4 that there are three different responses to the living stone. In the beginning of verse 4, the first response is those that come to him. In the middle of verse 4, we see that there are those who reject him. And then at the end of verse 4, we see God's response, how God regards this living stone. God regards him as choice and precious. Peter will go and explain more about those who come to him in verse 5. But the main emphasis of verse 4 is this contrast between those who reject the living stone and how God views the living stone. The unsaved world rejects him. God values him. In the middle of verse 4, we see that many reject him. And the Greek word is apodik. Apodokimazo, apodokimazo. The stem is doke or doche, which means to receive or to watch. Dokimos refers to a man who is tested, a man who is significant, who is recognized, who is reliable, trustworthy, esteemed, a man who is worthy. Apodokimazo is the opposite. It refers to a man who is not tested, insignificant, overlooked, unreliable, disparaged, unworthy, unfit, disregarded, regarded as a nobody. And this is how the world sees Christ. The world rejects him. But in stark contrast, God views the living stone as choice and precious. The living stone is eclectos. He is chosen. He is elect. He is selected, distinguished. He is the one who is considered the best choice. He is the one who is excellent. He was specifically picked. And he's also entemos, precious, the one who is highly honored, esteemed, worthy, valuable, treasured, precious. So how do you esteem the living stone? How do you esteem Jesus Christ? How valuable is He to you? How is your esteem of Christ reflected in your priorities, in your obedience to His Word, or in how how you use your God-given talents, or time, or resources? What does that show about how much you value 
or treasure Jesus Christ. My boys are learning geography, and Daniel, in his geography book, it means that he's also going to be learning about David Livingston. His geography book includes this brief description of David Livingston. It says, Dr. David Livingston was a Scottish medical missionary and explorer in Africa during the late 19th century. Livingston was the first European to see Moziwatuna, the smoke of the thunder, a waterfall which he renamed after Queen Victoria. The Vic Falls, Victoria Falls. He also discovered Lake Ngami, Lake Malawi, and Lake Bangwiulu. Speak to Anton Munch afterwards if you want to get the correct pronunciations. Near the end of his life, Livingston lost contact with the outside world. And in 1869, the New York Herald newspaper sent Henry Morton Stanley to go and find him. Two years later, Stanley found him in the town Ujiji on the shores of Lake Tanganika. On the 27th of October, 1871, he greeted him with these famous words. Dr. Livingstone, Livingston, Dr. Livingston, I presume. He responded, yes, I feel thankful that I'm here to welcome you. David Livingston is one of the most famous missionaries of all time. In addition to his significant work in exploration, his commitment to Christ shines even more brightly. One journal article he wrote reads, I place no value on anything I have or may possess, except in relation to the kingdom of Christ. If anything will advance the interests of the kingdom, I shall give it away or keep it. Only as by giving it away or keeping it, I shall promote the glory of Him to whom I owe all my hopes in time and eternity. End quote. David Livingston indeed had a living hope. He treasured the living stone. Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church. Jesus Christ is the foundation of the gospel. The living stone is the foundation of Christianity. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18 says that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who, per- who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then in verse 27 through 29, Paul goes on and he says, But God has chosen, same Greek word, eklektos, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen. The things that are not, so that He may abolish the things that are, so that no flesh may boast before God. And then in verse 30, Paul says that Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, became to us wisdom from God. Why on earth would Jesus Christ, the living stone, be regarded as foolishness? Why would He and the message of the cross, which is the power and the wisdom of God, why would it be regarded as foolishness by some? Well, let me list eight reasons. 
Some think the living stone and the cross is foolishness because they have no regard for God's Word. They say the Bible is old, esoteric, and out of touch with modern society. Some consider the cross stupid because it fails the cleverness test when compared to the philosophies of men. Some in their arrogance and foolishness ridicule and dismiss the message of the cross regarding it as meaningless or unimportant. Blinded by arrogance and lacking wisdom, they see no beauty in the Lord Jesus Christ and the cross. Some consider the cross foolish because wealth and prestige has diminished their need of God and their need for the promised glory. Some reject Jesus Christ because in their pride, they will not bow their knee to King Jesus. They will not submit to His word. Sinning against a good, holy, and living God doesn't bring them to conviction and repentance. Some reject Jesus and His cross because they love their sin and they do not want to change. They're not willing to repent of their sinful lifestyles. Some believe a loving God, a loving God, would certainly not crush His Son to placate His wrath, making the cross ridicule. But they fail to recognize that it's the very cross of Christ where we see God's love most put on display. Some are deceived by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human traditions and the elemental spirits of this world, not according to Christ. And thus they regard the cross as stupid. Without the scripture, some, th- some think that the cross is foolish because they don't have a foundation. They don't have a biblical understanding. And yet it was through the Holy Scriptures that Timothy was made wise unto salvation, having been taught about Jesus Christ from his childhood. 2 Timothy 3 verse 15. Timothy understood the prophecies, the promises, the doctrines of Scripture. And this knowledge was the foundation of his faith in the living stone, in Jesus Christ. You cannot build the house of God without a rock-solid foundation. And that foundation is living, is the living stone, Jesus Christ. Before we consider the walls, which we'll see in verse 5, I want to show you that Scripture also calls the apostles and prophets part of the foundation. So keep your finger in 1 Peter 2 and turn back in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, Philippians Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, go eat popcorn. (laughs) Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. So Paul is describing the church in this incredible letter. And he's describing how these Jews and Gentiles who were once enemies, who once hated each other, are now one, one people, united in Christ. And he says in chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, he says, So then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being joined together, is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. 
in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. You and I are God's household. We are the walls that are built upon the foundation, which Paul says then, verse 20, is the apostles and prophets. They are the authors of Scripture. They are the men that the Spirit moved to pen the Word of God. The Word, the teachings of the apostles and prophets are the foundation. Here again, like Peter, Paul says that the walls are being built upon Jesus Christ, who he calls the cornerstone. The Word of God, the Scriptures, as well as Jesus Christ, are the foundation of our community, are the foundation of the church, the foundation of God's spiritual house, which is growing into a holy sanctuary in which He lives, a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So you can turn back to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, we see that the Bible and Jesus, the living stone, is the foundation. Notice how in verse 6, the living stone is also called a choice stone and a precious cornerstone. Verse 7 says that he is a cornerstone, which is the same word that Paul used in Ephesians 2. Being a choice stone, Jesus is uniquely chosen, fitted for this task. Being a precious stone demonstrates Jesus' unequaled value, His worth, His cost, Him being irreplaceable, Him being of immense worth. Nothing compares. Being a cornerstone describes Him being as the stone that set all the proper angles for the building. Much like a builder's plumb line, sets the horizontals and the verticals for the rest of the building and establishes the precise symmetry of the entire edifice to ensure the perfect precision of God's spiritual household. The cornerstone, the the first building stone of the foundation needed to be flawless because it would determine the extent of the rest of the structure. And there was only one who could set all the angles of God's house perfectly. And that was the living, the perfectly prepared cornerstone, Jesus Christ. The second essential element for building the house of God are the walls, which we see in verse 5. The walls. Peter says in verse 5, You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are the walls of God's house. Those who are spoken of in verse 4 as the ones who come to Him are now mentioned here in verse 5. You are the ones who come to Him. You are the living stones. Christ is the living stone. Christians are living stones, plural. When God caused us to be born again, we came to Christ, the living stone, which is far more than merely just drawing near to Him, although that we, we did that too. He drew us to Himself, but it really denotes a drawing near in intimacy, in abiding, in communion, in personal fellowship with Him, the living stone. 
as living stones, we have intimate and ongoing communion with the living stone. Jesus Christ is the living stone. He is the eternal, self-existent, second person of the Trinity, the one who has enjoyed endless, eternal fellowship within the triune God, endless communion with the Godhead. But in order to redeem wicked sinners like you and me, 2,000 years ago, He entered this world and He took on His creation. He took on flesh so that He would live on this earth in our place. And He laid down His life to placate the wrath of God. Jesus died in our place, paying sin's penalties in full. But on the third day, He rose and He is alive, never to die again. He is the living stone. And all who trust in Him, He gives life to them. He gives life to all who place their faith in Him, who turn from their wickedness and trust in His finished work of salvation. Ephesians 2 verse 5 says that God made us alive together with Christ. Peter says in chapter 1 verse 3 that He caused us to be born again to a living hope. And then here in chapter 2 verse 5, we are referred to as living stones. We are alive because Christ has risen and we've been made alive in Him. Being living stones means that we have an eternal life. We have eternal life in Christ. We know God and we know the one whom He sent, Jesus Christ. We are united with Him. We worship Him. We obey Him. We give to Him. We pray to Him. We are no longer living for ourselves, but we are living for Him. And collectively, we are united together. And we are being built up as a spiritual house. Oko domeo means to build, to construct. Oko domeo. It's made up of oikos, which means house. And then domeo, domeo, verb, means to build. So the word that Peter uses is oiko domeste, which is a passive indicative. It, the emphasis is that we are being built up. We are being built up. This is not a command. It's not an imperative. This is not something that we must do. This is something that is done to us. In fact, this entire pericope from verse 4 through to 10, there's not even a single imperative, not a single command. The focus is rather on who we are as living stones and what God is doing in us and through us. This is the work of God. And he describes the Christian community, the church. Peter, as we've seen, is drawing on Old Testament temple theology. It's a sanctuary. The community of believers is the sanctuary in which God meets his people. Christians are being built up into a spiritual house into a sanctuary where God meets with His people, where God reveals Himself, where He displays His glory, and where God enjoys worship through our singing, through our prayers, through our giving, through our ministry to one another. God is worshipped. The house of God is not a building. It's the gathered, united saints who are indwelt by His Spirit, who are given spiritual gifts, which we are to employ in the power of the Holy Spirit for the building up of this body, for the mutual edification of this body, 
so that Christ would be glorified, exalted in this community and to the ends of the earth. And so the body of Christ, or, or rather in keeping with the building metaphor, the house of Christ, the house of God, is built. And it is broadened and heightened and made stronger through Jesus Christ for God's glory. As living stones, we are the new temple. We are a spiritual temple, the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and support of the truth. 1 Timothy 3 verse 15. And collectively, we are a holy priesthood, a body of priests. This is our corporate identity, not our individual status, our corporate identity. And we offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, many people, when they think of a priesthood, they think of the flawed, unbiblical Roman Catholic Church. When Peter speaks of a holy priesthood, he most certainly does not have the Roman Catholic Church in mind that only developed much later. Nor is he referring to the old covenant priesthood, which was made up of a single tribe, the tribe of Levi. Although he's certainly drawing on that theology, you know, if you think of some of the differences in the Old Testament, the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, but only once a year on the Day of Atonement. Whereas we get to commune with the living God every moment of every day. Presumptuous priests, as we see in the Old Testament, they were severely judged. In Numbers chapter 16, Korah and his followers sinfully wanted to be priests. And what happened? God destroyed them. God took the kingdom away from King Saul. Why? Because he usurped Samuel's priesthood at Gilgal. In 1 Samuel 13, verses 8 through 14. And in 2 Samuel 6, verses 6 and 7, Uzziah, Uzziah died. Why did he die? From touching the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God. And in 2 Chronicles 26, verses 16 through 21, King Uzziah overthrew the priesthood. And what happened to him? God killed him. But under the new covenant, such limitations do not exist. All believers, irrespective of how young or how old you may be, how mature or how immature you may be, we are a holy priesthood. Nevertheless, there are significant parallels that we can learn. Peter, after all, is drawing from this Old Testament theology and describing how it is made new in the new covenant, the priesthood of believers. In Exodus chapter 28 and 29... Yahweh provides an overview of His instructions for His priesthood, which includes the standards, the principles, and the functions of the office. In Leviticus 8 and 9, He describes the induction of these men into the priesthood. In Malachi 2, He contrasts the apostate priesthood with legitimate God-ordained priests. And from these chapters of Scripture, we can draw... Six different characteristics of the New Testament priesthood of believers. We're going to look at these three passages of Scripture and see where the parallels occur within the new covenant body of the holy priesthood. Firstly, Exodus 28 shows us that God sovereignly chose the priesthood. 
And you'll be reminded in John 15, verse 16, Jesus said to his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you, that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would abide, so that whatever you ask in my Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Secondly, in Leviticus 8, verses 6 through 36, it tells us that before they started their duties, Yahweh cleansed them from their sin. The washings, the sin offerings, the burnt offerings, the consecration and wave offerings, they all indicated that not even a man from the tribe of Levi could enter the priesthood without first being cleansed from his sin. In Titus chapter 2, verses 14, as well as in chapter 3, verse 5, Paul said that Jesus gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. He saved us, not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to His mercy through the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. Jesus cleansed us, His people, by His blood, through His Spirit, so that we might become His holy priests. Thirdly, at the end of Exodus 28, we see that Yahweh clothed the priests with garments, garments suitable for the service. They wore priestly garments, which symbolized their sexual purity. It also symbolized their unique call, their unique call to righteousness, to virtue, to godliness. Believers today are holy priests. We have been clothed in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says that we become the righteousness of God in Him. In Christ. Fourthly, we see in Leviticus 8, verse 30, that Yahweh anointed the Levitical priests for service through Moses. The anointing symbolized God's power, God's presence that was resting upon the priesthood, symbolizes their empowerment from the Holy Spirit as they served within His temple. And in a similar way, New Covenant believers are priests. Who have, been, who have been anointed, who have received the Holy Spirit. Last year, we finished our exposition through 1 John, the first letter of John. And you'll remember in 1 John chapter 2, verses 20 and 27, John reminded those struggling believers, he's saying, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. The anointing whom you received from Him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as He has taught you, abide in Him. God has anointed us as living stones his, uh, to, to serve as His holy priests. Christians are empowered by and possess the, the, the authority of the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence under the authority of Scripture. The fifth characteristic of a holy priesthood is that Yahweh calls His priests to obedience. In Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, they offered strange fire before Yahweh. 
which he had not commanded. And because of their disobedience, fire came out from the presence of Yahweh and consumed them. They died. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, Peter calls us to obedience. He says, As obedient children, not being conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who calls you, be holy yourselves also in all your conduct, because it is written, and he quotes Old Testament, You shall be holy, for I am holy. As holy priests, we are to have a high regard for God's Word. This is the highest authority. This is the authority that we come under. We submit ourselves, our lives, everything that we have and possess and own and think under this authority. As holy priests, we have a genuine walk with God, a holy walk with God, where we are fighting sin and pursuing righteousness. And we're having an impact upon the unsaved world around us as messengers, messengers of the Lord, proclaiming His excellencies. Malachi emphasizes these traits, the traits of a godly priesthood. In Malachi chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, he says, Instruction of truth was in his, in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found in his lips. He walked with me, Yahweh, in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of Yahweh of hosts. This is your ministry, Christian. This description was contrasted with the wicked priests who Malachi wrote about in the beginning of chapter 2. In verses 1 through 4. But Malachi's portrait of a godly priest serves as a parallel for believers, the priesthood of believers, the holy priesthood, who Peter says here in verse 9 are a royal priesthood. We are a royal priesthood so that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Sixth and final characteristic of a holy priesthood is that God prepares its members for service. And we see in Leviticus chapter 8, verses 33, as well as in Leviticus chapter 9, verses 4 through 22. Leviticus chapter 9, 2 through 4, and 2 through 20, 22 through 23. Let me repeat that. We see in Leviticus chapter 8, verse 33 as well as Leviticus chapter 9, verse 2 through 4, and 22 and 23, that God required them to spend seven days preparing their hearts. There was a time of preparation. In Romans chapter 12, after describing the power and the effects of the gospel for 11 chapters, Paul says to us in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, I exhort you, Brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may approve 
what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. And in a similar way, Peter says at the end of verse 5 that we are to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ is still our mediator, and He continues to work in us and through us as we serve as His holy priests, offering up ourselves as spiritual sacrifices to God. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 15 exhorts us to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Through Jesus Christ, that is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge His name. You see, even our faith, even our ability to acknowledge the name of Jesus is mediated through Jesus Christ. And so too, our sacrifice of praise, as well as our other spiritual sacrifices as Christians, our ministry, our service, we offer up through Jesus Christ. When we serve in our own strength, when we serve in our own understanding, our own wisdom, or out of our own resources, then it is not an acceptable service to God. It demonstrates pride, self-sufficiency, arrogance, faithlessness, self-centeredness, self-reliance, and God opposes the proud. And it grieves me that I see some of these sins in my own heart. My natural propensity is to march on ahead in my own strength, in my own understanding, for my own well-being and my own glory. I can very easily wake up overwhelmed by the responsibilities laid before me And then I hit the ground running as fast as I can, as hard as I can, trying to tick off tasks and meetings and people whilst thinking that I'm doing the Lord's work. But then I realize that my self-reliance, my prayerlessness, my anxiety, my fear, my discontentment, my grumbling and complaining indicates a lack of dependence upon the Lord, which is prideful. When I wake up remembering that I am weak, but God is strong. That I lack clarity, but God is wise. That I don't have what it takes, but God possesses all. Then I'm driven to the Word and to prayer. That I might commune with the living God. That I might be filled and empowered by the Spirit of God. That I might possess the mind of Christ In increasing measure, having Him cleanse my heart, having Him purify my motives so that my primary aim is only to please Him. This is a daily battle, so please pray with me and for me. How are you doing? Before you embark on a particular task or serve in a particular ministry, How much time do you spend praying beforehand? How much time do you spend thanking the Lord for all that He has done in your life and in this church? How much time do you spend gazing upon the cross, seeing your Savior pierced, crushed, 
bleeding so that your sin, the sin that you even committed against him this morning, could be paid for in full so that you could be forgiven. How much time do you spend thinking about your superior knowledge and achievements or talents, forgetting from where you have received them, forgetting who owns them? If the Lord is going to continue working in us and through us, He must humble us. He must strip us of any self-love, any self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and all selfishness. And He needs to move our eyes off of ourselves and onto Him, where they need to remain fixed. Paul says in Romans 14, verse 23, that whatever is not from faith is sin. Whatever is not from faith is sin. If we do not serve in the strength of the Holy Spirit for God's glory alone, then even our service will not be acceptable to Him. Don't lean on your own understanding. Reject pragmatism. Forget about what your financial coach, your life coach, your medical coach, your health coach has told you about wise living. No, we are to live by faith. We are to take God's word at heart, submit ourselves under His authority, His standard, His way. Remember, when God saves you, He saves you so that you will no longer live for yourself but that He will live in you and through you for His glory. As Christians, we allow ourselves, we place ourselves under, we allow ourselves to be built up as spiritual stones so that we might be built into a spiritual house, so that we might present spiritual sacrifices to God as a spiritual priesthood. Stop living for yourself. Stop striving to build your own kingdom. Offer your life. Offer all that you are and all that you possess as an acceptable sacrifice, an act of worship to God for His glory through Jesus Christ. We've considered the importance of the foundation as well as the walls. No building should be built without building plans. And this leads us to our third and final essential element for building the house of God. The drawings, which we see in verses 6 through 10. This is the third essential element for building the house of God. The drawings, in verses 6 through 10. And in verses 6 through 10, Peter quotes over 10 Old Testament prophecies and passages which support what he's taught us in verses 4 and 5. You see, whenever someone makes a truth claim to you, ask them to back it up with Scripture. Ask them to prove what they are saying through Scripture. And even though Peter is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he proves what he is saying here, what he is teaching us in verses 4 and 5, by backing it up with Old Testament Scripture. But you're going to have to wait until next Sunday for us to roll out the architectural drawings and take a closer look at the design of God's house. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, 
the Apostle Peter describes three essential elements so that his house, God's house, might be built. And so that you and I might serve him and one another within his church. So that you and I might go out into the world proclaiming his excellencies, proclaiming the good news of salvation, proclaiming life in the living stone, who is the foundation of this building. The walls, we are the walls, the living stones. We are members united in Christ and under Christ. We are, forget, we are fitted together and we serve in the strength that God supplies, the strength of the Spirit. And we serve so that the whole body or, or whole spiritual household might be built up, might grow, might be edified. Next Sunday, we'll look at the drawings, the blueprints, which is the Word of God, looking at each of those Old Testament passages within their context. And we'll find that what Peter has taught us in verses 4 and 5 is fully supported by Scripture. On the 4th of December, 1857, David Livingston addressed the students of Cambridge University about leaving the benefits of England behind. He said, For my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity? The consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a brighter hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger, now and then, with the foregoing of the common conveniences and the charities of this life, they may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink, but let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. Many doubted David Livingston's sincerity as a missionary because he spent so much of his time exploring and writing maps, which many map makers are indebted to. But his own perspective was clear. He said, as for me, I am determined to open up Africa or perish. He said, the end of the exploration is the beginning of the enterprise. And then a year before he died, in 1873, he wrote in his journal on his 59th birthday, he said, my birthday, my Jesus, my King, my life, my all, I dedicate, I again dedicate my whole self to Thee. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for the incredible privilege it is to know You, the living stone, to be united with You, to be set free from pursuing the superficial unsatisfying, fleeting, worthless pursuits of this world and made alive and empowered by your Spirit and moved by you to live with the greatest joy and satisfaction of knowing you and serving you, furthering your glory, your name, your fame without, within this community and beyond. Thank you for the incredible joy it is to know you, the privilege it is to be used by you, Oh God, we pray that you would humble us, that you would strip us of all self-reliance, strip us of all selfishness,
pride so that we would be useful instruments, worthy instruments, praying people, a people that depend upon you, a people that live for you and your glory, a people that use all that you've entrusted to us only for the praise and the honor of your name. Pray this in your name, O God. Amen.